today on Ag News Daily. You know, once you turn the calendar into September and October and November, you know, that's game time for the soybean industry, for agriculture in general. Listeners, Thursday, October 5th, 2023, a chilly morning here in Central Iowa, right, Delaney? It is. It's finally feeling like fall. It is. And it, we get spoiled. I shouldn't, maybe spoiled is not the right terminology. You just get used to walking out with a, a long sleeve t-shirt, knowing that you'll probably lose it by the end of the day because you'll be sweating at noon. And we maybe have some of that weather behind us now. Yeah, that's the part I don't like is the hot and cold feeling you get throughout the day. Yeah, we've even got freeze watches that have been issued for most of the Dakotas and Nebraska, parts of some of the other Midwest states. Temperatures in West Central South Dakota are forecasted to drop as low as 25 degrees overnight tonight. Some freezing temperatures are also possible across part of the Western and Central places, uh, parts of North Dakota Friday and Saturday. So we'll continue to see cool temperatures move into the Midwest. Central Nebraska could see as low as 24 degrees Saturday morning. If you go further west, Wyoming uh, will also follow follow under a freeze watch, and counties in northwestern Iowa will also hit some of those levels. So no moisture in sight, but we are looking at some cooling temperatures. We certainly are, Tanner. But we're not looking for cooler temperatures or cooler prices, I should say, in the grocery store. Chicken prices in U.S. grocery stores have hit record highs and should stay elevated as Tyson Foods and many other Poultry companies are dialing back on poultry production to try and boost margins. Tanner chicken is usually the uh, cheaper meat protein source in the grocery store, but that certainly may not be the case moving forward as these higher chicken prices should improve earnings at Tyson, Pilgrim's Pride, and other top producers. However, of course, that will pinch consumers' pocketbooks as they're trying to save money from buying higher end proteins, it sounds like all proteins are going to be more expensive moving forward. U.S. chicken consumption is expected to exceed 100 pounds per person this year for the first time ever, and beef consumption is expected to drop to its lowest since 2018 as prices continue to climb for all protein. But we did get report here that The other factor that might play into higher chicken prices that is unintended by Tyson and others is avian influenza. Mexican animal officials confirmed the first case of H5N1 avian influenza in a wild bird on Wednesday and declared the country's poultry farms free of the virus, but to be on watch as, of course, wild birds may get into your commercial herds or your on-farm herds and could really spread this thing quickly. But uh, it is the season for avian influenza, as we know there in France, just reported yesterday that they're going to be putting together a nationwide vaccination program. So there's uh, authorities are remaining diligent and asking farmers to do the same, Tanner. Yeah, most certainly. We reported earlier this week that Navigator CO2 had suspended its request for permits in South Dakota but we see now that Summit is looking to make a new pipeline permit application. They state that they understand it could take more than a year for Summit Carbon Solutions to get approval for their carbon dioxide pipeline in South Dakota. They already had submitted a permit application, which was denied by utility regulators in the state last month. 
it will reapply after it identifies a new route that complies with city ordinances. And they're looking to move forward. They're committed to working together with the counties in South Dakota to find a mutually agreeable path through each county. <clears throat> they are looking to put their ordinances of the state and counties at the top of the priority list regarding acceptability and applicability to make sure this route is amicable for all. They will not seek any waivers and are looking to design a route that would fit exactly what the ordinances have in place. Summit had already filed for the commission to overrule the ordinances, but withdrew that request, which we reported on two weeks ago. As they look through this project, South Dakota law is a law allow the counties to adopt restrictions on pipelines and state regulators can't overrule them if they're unreasonably restrictive. But as of right now, the four counties, Brown, McPherson, Minnehaha, and Spink, have adopted the ordinances that require the pipelines to be a certain distance from residences, livestock facilities, nursing homes, and other buildings. And that's what Summit will work around now. So it looks like they will continue to put an effort into that route. They stated they are starting at ground zero and are looking for a better path. Well, Tanner, as we look to stay in the alternative energy space, the Renewable Fuels Association is calling on the California Air Resources Board or CARB, that's a better acronym than some others we've heard, to expedite its approval for E15. The RFA argues that CARB's delay in approving E15 is hindering potential air quality and emissions improvements. The letter from the RFA highlights the benefits, of course, of E15 and also emphasizes the importance that it is to implement this in the state of California. Of course, with lower carbon emissions, that seems like that would fit in line with what California legislation and environmental uh, folks are already are already wanting to implement, but for whatever reason, CARB has been dragging their feet. So interesting there, Tanner, that uh, California really tries to be green. However, they haven't taken steps to implement year-round E15. Yeah, I had saw that headline, but also sticking in California and sticking green, just green for citrus. So previously called the citrus greening disease, now is pronounced, or now is called Huang Longbang, or HLB, has been found in Santa Paula, California. This has now prompted a state-ordered quarantine. The discovery of an insect that was carrying the bacteria linked to the greening fungus or greening disease in citrus in a residential tree will create this quarantine. The quarantine will restrict the movement of citrus fruit, trees, and related plant material within a five-mile radius of the find. The California Department of Food and Agriculture will continue to monitor this process. If more cases are found, that radius will expand. So the California Department of Ag will work with the USDA and Ventura County Agricultural Commissioners to continue to watch this. This is a devastating find as it means the Asian citrus psyllid, the infected insect, is present in the middle of a citrus growing area that is currently and historically important for lemons. The quarantined area is bordered on the north <clears throat> by more citrus. There's nearly 6,300 trees in this area. And if they were tested positive, they would all have to be removed. And that is a huge financial impact, let alone 
what this could do for the state's citrus market and ability to provide the U.S. with the fruits. These tiny insects can fly short distances and are known to hitchhike on citrus plants and fruit that is moved throughout the state on commercial trucks. They will continue to keep an eye on this process and hopefully they can get it quarantined to where it does not expand super quick. Well, Tanner, I've got some Argentinian news here as well as Argentina is, of course, the world's largest soybean processor. And according to some of their country's head of country exports, according to what they've shared with Reuters, Argentina is going to be running way behind as far as their soy processing goes for the remainder of this year and even into next year. They said due to the disastrous drought here, they've had the last two crop years. They're going to be idling a lot of crush facilities and the president of grain exporters and crushing chamber has said that they're expecting to see more than 65% of their facilities in the Paraná district are going to be idling because they simply just don't have enough soybeans to crush. Of course, their next harvest will not be until April, and uh, they're going to have to make do until then. They said with 3 million tons left, they have to try to survive until May of 2024. Of course, they have also been importing soybeans from other countries. And in fact, this is the most imports that they have ever had to bring into the country here as they've looked to some of their neighboring countries from Paraguay. Bolivia and Brazil to try and just keep crushing facilities open. But they said all in all, this has not been a great year for them. And they're really hoping that they get a more, um, more equitable climate here and more equitable growing season in 2024, Tanner. But uh, that certainly could impact when we look at the global marketplace. We're really ramping up here in the United States, of course, to see more soy crushing and processing facilities. Uh, And so it's unfortunate that that's not coming at a time when we have those facilities online, but that certainly could play out here in the global marketplace. Yeah, you're certainly right. And we know that uh, part of the demand for soy is biodiesel. We're also seeing that the Russian government is, and we're seeing that the Russian government is ready to ease their ban on diesel exports in the coming days. They're citing The Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak said restrictions had been working. Despite being one of the world's top oil producers, Russia has suffered high domestic prices and shortages of their own gasoline and diesel in the recent months. High export prices have made it advantageous for refiners to sell their products abroad. The ban would be lifted only on pipeline exports of diesel, and that volumes may be subject to quotas to avoid surges in wholesale prices. The ban on gasoline exports exports will remain in force for now, as far as that is considered. I've also got a couple more headlines coming out of Russia and Ukraine. The president of the United States is concerned that failing efforts to approve arms for Ukraine amid the political upheaval in Congress could cause some battlefield concerns for them. When asked about the prospect of dwindling aid from the U.S., President Zelensky said he told reporters the European summit on Thursday that the U.S. is dealing with a difficult election period and that they understand. In a move that could help alleviate potential military aid shortages, they are looking at transferring thousands of seized Iranian arms to Kiev. 
Shelling and Kirsten killed at least two more residents on Thursday. Russian forces have ramped up their attacks. And Ukraine is also claiming that they had uh, destroyed key Russian air military defense systems. Well, Taylor, those were some of the headlines I had coming out of Russia, Ukraine. So I'll move on here to my final piece of news, which is retail fertilizer prices. I know we just spoke with Josh Linville there and thought there was maybe a little bit of a rosy picture ahead. However, according to the DTN fertilizer tracker for the fourth week of September, we saw that fertilizer prices are once again becoming more pronounced and seeing some prices continuing to fall while some prices have started to move a little bit higher. Five of the eight major fertilizer were more expensive compared to last month. And of course, that is anything more than a 5% move. And hydras here most notably was 13% higher compared to last month with an average of $767 per ton. And of course, that is still fairly significantly lower than where it was at its peak. But it is something to keep an eye on here, Tanner, as we're watching uh, other fertilizers as well. UAN is a little bit higher here. A map fertilizers, a little bit higher DAP. So all in all, uh, some fertilizers are are starting to creep slowly back up there. Yeah, I saw that. All I've got left for my headlines is ethanol output. It was basically unchanged week to week as we saw a million point nine barrels per day on average in the week ending September 29th, ethanol stockpiles declined to 21.884 million barrels. That's down from 22.048 in the previous week. But that's what I've got for headlines. So let's take a look at markets. Let's do that, Tanner. As we look at the overnights here, we're trading a little bit lower across the grains, except for wheat. December corn down two and a half cents at 483 and a half. Nove beans down seven and three quarters at 1265 and a quarter. As we look at hard red winter wheat here, December contract up four and a half pennies in the overnight at 671. December spring wheat up four cents at 715 and three quarters. And Chicago, December wheat up a penny and a half at 561 and a half. Livestock yesterday traded mixed on the board as the December live cattle contract added 37 and a half cents at a buck 86.02. November feeder cattle closed seven pennies higher. We'll open this morning at 250.42 and a half. And December lean hogs closed 10 cents higher at 69.17 and a half. Tanner, for today's conversation, we're chatting with Mike Steenhook of the Soybean Transportation Council to chat about barge river levels and shipping logistics. Well, Tanner, as we think back to the last few months, water and shipping have been huge logistical challenges for a lot of folks. And we're chatting today with Mike Steenhook, the executive director for the Soy Transportation Council, Soy Transportation Coalition, excuse me. Mike, thanks so much for joining us again today. Yeah, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Mike, this year seems like it was extremely challenging when we think about river levels, getting barge traffic shipped through. Walk us through the last let's say three to six months in review. Here we are in harvest. Where have we been and where we're at today? Well, we've, we've seen a, based on the, the, the drought conditions that we've experienced over the last, you know, I mean, it extends back into to last year um, and well into this year. It's a reminder of the fact that 
uh, dry conditions can impede the ability to grow a crop, but also impede the ability to transport that crop. And when we saw this persistent lack of precipitation um, occur over the course of this year, it, it increasingly created concern among agricultural shippers because, you know, once you turn the calendar into September and October and November, you know, that's game time for the soybean industry, for agriculture in general. It also is our, our key export window for soybeans. And when that occurs, you need to have your supply chain operating at full throttle. And unfortunately, with the low water conditions that, you know, we continue to witness, um, it, we, we enter into this period, this critical period, not from a position of strength, but from a position of weakness. And so we were clearly seeing that uh, manifest itself as the, the calendar continued to proceed uh, throughout the course of the year. You know, one of the things that is always a, a reminder to us is once you have drought conditions get firmly established, it takes a real profound and sustained amount of precipitation to really dig yourself out of that. And so that was, um, and that's what we find ourselves in right now. And when you look at the drought monitor, you see, you know, the big takeaway from that is so much of U.S. farm ground is behaving like one big dry sponge. So any kind of precipitation that has recent, recently occurred and will occur is overwhelmingly being absorbed into the ground, which is good for the farm ground. But what that means is there's not a lot of residual water for our streams and our rivers that can help sustain barge transportation. So when you get out the crystal ball, you know, of course, anything can happen, but it, it clearly suggests that this problem will continue to persist, if not get worse. So for perspective, is there a percentage, do you have a statistic about how many of America's soybeans do end up taking water transportation? Is it half? Is it more? What are we looking at? Yeah, of our exports, it's 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 very similar for corn and for soybeans. About sixty percent of of soybean and corn exports are transported by the inland waterway system, and you know, obviously there's a reason for that. You have these very significant soybean producing states and corn producing states like Illinois and Iowa and Missouri and Minnesota and et cetera that have the benefit of being adjacent to this very efficient maritime highway where barge transportation can transport heavy commodities like soybeans and grain long distances in an economical manner. It's been really one of the secrets to our success in the international marketplace, having this, again, very efficient maritime highway called the Mississippi River and its tributaries. And so that's that's the good news when the, the river is behaving as normal. But when you've got dry conditions like like what we're continuing to, to witness and experience, it obviously has a, a negative impact on the profitability of the industry. So Mike, as we look at current day, we're obviously here in harvest season now in full swing and getting exports to the ports is always a huge concern this time of year. What's your outlook here logistics wise for getting crops from the PNW down to the ports in the Southern areas? Yeah, it, it's it's a real concern because you know what what we've done is what we're experiencing is kind of analogous to going from a six lane 
freeway down to two or three lanes. And so you're still having barge transportation occur. And, you know, we had historically low water levels last year and we still had exports still occurred. It didn't come to a, an absolute halt, but it's not as efficient as it normally is. And what farmers are having to do is consider what their options B, C, and D are. And for every farmer, that's going to be different. You know, it might just simply be if they have on-farm storage just to put their soybeans and their corn into on-farm bins, waiting for a time where the river is has been recharged and can better accept deliveries to the river. It, it could be option B could be driving to a rail loading facility where those soybeans are in turn shipped to customers, say in Mexico or going to the Atlantic coast or the Pacific Northwest. Um, option B might be sending it to a, a soybean processor or on the, on the corn side to an ethanol plant. You know, when you have these kind of experiences like these low water conditions, it really serves as a very vivid reminder of the cardinal rule in supply chains, which is don't put all of your eggs in one basket. The more diverse of a supply chain you have, the more options you have, the better position you are for success. So as you describe that tied to a freeway, what does the low water cause? Does it mean we can't load our barges as full? Does it mean we can't tie as many together? What's the effect? It really impacts two things, uh, both it, channel depth and channel width. So with channel depth, you're not putting as many soybeans or corn in each barge. And we're looking at 20, 25% reduction in the loading capacity of these barges um, because you're concerned that it may scrape the bottom and maybe even encounter a grounding. We saw that last year and we're seeing examples of that this year. So that's channel depth, but then also channel width when you have a narrower shipping channel because of low water conditions, then that means that you're not in a position to attach as many barges together to form one single unit. And that's one of the one of the powers of the barge industry as, as a supply chain option is you have this ability when river conditions are, are sufficient to be able to put all these barges together, 30, 40, 45 barges all kind of together to form one single unit. They're all attached via wire cables. And then they form a single unit and go down to export terminals in the New, or in the New Orleans area. That's really an effective way of moving things like soybeans and grain. So, but because of the low water conditions, you can't do that as much because the shipping channel is more narrow. And then to add insult to injury, you know, you have parts of the river that are so narrow where you can no longer have that two-way traffic. So you have to hold off while say a northbound barge flotilla goes by and then they allow a southbound barge flotilla to go by and so it's just one more thing that really all conspires to make barge transportation less efficient at a very important time of the year for farmers. Yeah, Mike. So as you look at the economic impact, obviously shipping costs basis, all of those things are starting to play out now that farmers might see down at their level as well. But give us a high level overview of where currently we see the economics sitting, where the prices are, where's shipping costs being associated, and how might farmers see that at a day-to-day -day level? 
Yeah, I had a farmer in the in the Memphis, Tennessee area mentioned to me recently that he normally expects a basis for soybeans at this time of the year to be anywhere from a positive 20 cents to a negative 20 cents. And now that we're seeing a negative $1.10, a negative $1.30. So it's it's a really good example of how you've got this very macro issue, the efficiency of the Mississippi River that has real practical local application on an individual farmer's wallet. You know, the question is always when you have a transportation cost increase, and we're certainly witnessing that with barge rates right now, um, 100% higher than the three-year average, 150% higher than the three-year average. The, the question is always who is the unfortunate person that has to absorb those costs? Do they get passed on to the customer? Do they get absorbed by the handler slash shipper? Or do they get passed on to the farmer in the form of a lower price that they are offered at point of sale? And what we're seeing, you know, all three things can certainly happen, but we see disproportionately those costs do get passed on to a farmer. So again, it's it's something that has very practical implications on an individual farmer's wallet. So is there any reprieve in sight? Is there a, a good forecast or a way to get us back to normal river levels? Well, one of the things that you know we're just consistently reminded of is once once drought conditions really take root, it takes a lot of sustained precipitation to dig it to dig us out of that scenario. When you look at the drought monitor, you see so much of U.S. farm ground very dehydrated, and it behaves like a, one big dry sponge. So when you see you know the forecast for precipitation and and we we've received some recent rainfalls in the midwest and we expect some during the course of this week but when you have those rainfalls and then you look at the drought monitor the subsequent week that drought monitor map looks just as angry as it did the preceding week and that was just that's a reminder of the fact that it takes a lot of moisture to really turn the tide on drought conditions so any precipitation that does occur right now will overwhelmingly be absorbed into the ground, which is important for the ground. We need it. But what that does mean is there's not a lot of residual water that will be available for our streams and our rivers to help elevate and recharge uh, these, these channel depths and channel widths on the Mississippi River and other tributaries. Mike, I think that ends our time today, but thanks so much for joining us and sharing an update on where things are at for this harvest season. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, there you go, listeners. Thanks for hanging around with us another day. Make sure you check back tomorrow. We'll have another great conversation for you. We appreciate all that you do when you share this podcast and follow us on social media. So please keep doing that. But for today, what do you say, Delaney? Should we let him go? Let's let him go.